Welcome to The Collector's House, a Matches Fashion Podcast. I'm Danielle Rodoichin. Each episode features a conversation with a creative mind about the things that inspire them or that have given their life meaning in some way. From books, to art, to a piece of jewellery, these objects are collected into a cabinet which resides in physical form in the attic at 5 Carlos Place, the Matches Fashion Townhouse in London. Todd Oldham is the irrepressible New Yorker whose multifarious talents have seen him turn his hand to many different roles. As a successful fashion designer who showed in the 90s, a TV presenter with a regular segment on MTV's programme House of Style, and as an interiors designer, a photographer and the creator of numerous books. The most recent of these is The Best of Nest, a compendium of the cult interiors magazine, to whose eccentric and wildly original pages he was a regular contributor during its brief run from 1997 to 2004. Here he is, talking to me about those heady 90s New York fashion days and why he left it behind, fascinating stories about working on Nest, and just what it is that makes a compelling interior. Are you in your office at the moment or are you at home? No, I'm in in Pennsylvania. I live on the first ripple of the Poconos for, well, I used to live here half the week and then New York half the week, but uh, the whole world's been a bit derailed, so I'm spending more time here. And you've you've got some paintings on the wall behind you. There's one painting that looks like, I mean, I can't see it very well. It's tiny, but it looks like, is that Nick Cave with a dog? (laughs) Let's see, which one? The top, top row, the guy with the dog. What's that for? Oh, it's a yes. It's a it's a woman with a dog. It's a painting from the late thirties. Oh, yeah, it does look. There we go. <laughs> yeah, it's beautiful. I just uh, have a huge collection of all kinds of stuff. So it's just uh, over the years I've been a, a hoarder, hoarder of sorts, an organized hoarder. Let's call it archiving, shall we? And uh, <laughs> doesn't <laughs> sound good. quite as good. that's good. Doesn't sound quite as uh, an opportunity to turn you in. So. Um, it's just been fun through the years and and actually to see you know having been at such a, a thrift store and flea market guy for decades it's interesting to see that like the stuff dissipated you know i remember you know it's just those things are not available anymore so i'm happy i have most of it <laughs> you've collected it i want to talk to you about thrifting in a minute but i just think i should just say for i should state for the record that we are recording this over the internet in late September 2020. What's it like there at the moment with all the, the stuff that's going on? It's in Pennsylvania, it's still pretty calm. It's one, of, I live in one of the last rural communities, so it's pretty underpopulated and hence not very uh, affected too strongly by the COVID. But um, yeah, it's just weird. The, the, the sad part is New York. I mean, it's just, it's just heartbreaking. I had to close my studio uh, in New York, just because we nobody we literally couldn't enter the building. The, the elevators were like you know thirty five inches wide, so it just wouldn't work. It's really it's just strange. But thankfully, we're we're a studio that's made up of it's it's everyone's an artist in the studio, so we're used to kind of looking at a project, cutting it into pieces, everybody doing whatever they're going to do, and then come back together. So this system has not affected us negatively in any way. This is exactly how we work. Mm. What's going to happen to um, Halloween this year? My daughter was asking me uh, this just now outside. I was like, I don't know if Halloween's happening in the UK this year. Is it happening mm. in New York, do you think? 
well, it is my favorite holiday, but no, I can't imagine. I, I, why, why on earth would we be accepting here objects from, for, from strangers? <laughs> no, this is like a recipe for what not to do at this moment. But that doesn't mean we can't make gorgeous decorations and, and put on a good costume. We just might have to run around our homes. Um, you, why is it your, you should elaborate on why it's your favorite um, holiday. Well, um, I was born in October and it always felt such a, it just always felt like a happy time of year. And so to me, like when it got happy, it, the imagery involved ghosts and Frankenstein and blood and, you know, uh, it just, that <laughs> feels kind of warm and cozy to me. And I love, I'm, I'm mad for the, the imagery. Like I, I actually collect ghosts. There's go, there's ghost sculptures all ghosts. over. <laughs> yeah. Well, sculptures, facsimiles, but wow. I, did, I, I have lived in a lot of hum, haunted places though strangely my house in new york is haunted really how does that yeah. haunting manifest well it um it never any it's i'm in no danger and there's no ill will but it's it's been so consistent now for four or five years it's only in the kitchen and there's these enormous crashes like one dropped a a, a crystal bowl from the ceiling that hit the floor you hear it hit and you can hear the pieces scatter and stop when they would hit the wall but never ever anything there's you go back in there's nothing it's gone to the point where my, the dog does just kind of glances in the other direction now it's, <laughs> oh, it's, it's a ghost it's like every day like every you know every day there's some crash or crunch or something in there. is it is it friendly yeah yeah I, mean, I have no problems and i don't i know there's no ill will but it's distinct yeah. it's, it's not i'm not making it up it happens all the time i feel like i should explain a bit about who you are todd for um people who might not know but um for someone like myself who came of age in the 90s you are of course a you're a fashion designer um contemporary with the likes of Marc Jacobs and Anna Sui um people might also remember you from your MTV show on well your segment on MTV Todd Time which I've been watching with delight on YouTube over the last <laughs> few evenings but also you've done so many other things over the years from interior design to um, collaborating with different brands and fashion brands. And you've published several books, one of which we're going to talk about in a bit. But I was wondering how you describe yourself. I mean, do you think of yourself as an artist, first and foremost, or are you a business person? Well, definitely not a business person. But, um, well, I don't know. Artist is a very big, that's a big crown to bestow on oneself. It's easy, it's easy to recognize it in others, but um, it's slightly uncomfortable to, for me to say that. But I... I I have lived a, a life of making, you know, I, I was just brought up that way ever since I was a, a very young kid. My family spent as much time teaching us what they knew to do and then what we didn't, we learned together. So it was just this constant, it was a way, it created a way of seeing and a way of learning that's just consistent and, and never changing. So to me, that's, I'm, I'm more kind of a weird smush up of someone that's terminally in school uh, uh, and slightly unemployable and with huge like crazy opportunities it's a very i've, I've created had a very strange life but i have really adventurous parents who were which just instilled this kind of great um travel lust in all of us it's just we're it's not that we're discontent where we are but there's the exciting the opportunity to see something new is a thrill so that mm. that i'm super grateful for and we always had we always had an unusual version of it you know moving to well like tehran when i was 12 i was there from 12 to 16 when the shah we left right when the Shah fell and things got very ugly, but it was so gorgeous. It, it, Iran was such a beautiful, rich experience in every way. The, the visuals, the, the beauty, the truly lovely people and 
the most gorgeous. Every, I, I don't know. It just was kind of a perfect place to me. I, I loved every bit of it. And then to be in proximity to the 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 physical manifestations of passion. I mean, a, a person would spend decades of their life laying lapis into the a panel of a mosque. You know, like, can you imagine like that kind of devotion to technique and beauty and and wanting to serve, I guess, serve humanity in a way because you're creating this beautiful motif that can be appreciated forever. I mean, it's just, it's, it's amazing. We don't have a lot of examples. It's certainly not in America of a de mm. de dedication like that. It, it, was, it was very lovely. Mm. Um, I, I also, I, I actually forget, I, I was so into chatting with you. I've, I just forgot there's a, we have a, a format to this podcast, which I believe you've been told about, which yeah. there's a magical cabinet of curiosities that we like to fill with the things that from that the guest uses to describe themselves, and I was wondering what the first thing would be that you'd put into the cabinet. Oh well, th thank you for your questions. I have been thinking about it, and it's actually kind of a hard question because someone <laughs> someone who lives in a, a, a cabinet of curiosity, it was hard to think of distilling this. But I, I think I have to, to not think of just singular objects. It's more like movements. But um, I collect photography, and have for many many years, and it, it, that just. Uh, it takes me, it's like having doors into other worlds that it's easy to fly into. And I never, ever tire of the, I mean, it just thrills me. I, I'm very lucky. I, I get to have a lot of Dion Arbus and Sugimoto uh, and, and exquisite things that I just can't believe I get to look at every day. So that, that's sort of, that's one of my great treasures in the, in the cabinet. Could, could we choose one image to put in there? Um... Let's see. Well, that's a virtual impossibility, but I'll say the first thing that comes to mind, which is a, is a Dion Arbus um, photo called, it's a young couple on Hudson Street. And it's, it's in, in her oeuvre, it's not particularly of note, but there's just something so truly lovely. It's just this young couple with their arm around each other standing in front of a, a mailbox. But it just captured, it's such a complete moment. You just seem to, to see everything between them. And I know that's a very magical, a magical image. Um, but the, one of the, uh, what else I would have to include in the curiosities is some of the works from my mother, Linda. My mom is an is a exquisite artist and an incredible uh, potter and ceramicist. And I have, she's made me dozens of beautiful uh, planters, which I cherish. And um, that's just, I, I'm blown away at her abilities. She's, she's one of my favorite artists. She's so skilled and it's, she's outrageous. Outrageous. She seems like an extraordinary person, your mother. I believe she was your business manager or she helped you launch your business originally when you were um, designing oh, before you moved to New York. This is true. And we still work together 40 years. Uh, this is the, our 40th year of, of running a design studio, which is um, remarkable in every, <laughs> on every level, believe me. It's amazing. So she's an artist as well as a, a business person. That's that's also quite unusual in itself. It is, and I think that's one of the things that she she taught all of us to to be. You know, we're, we're a family of nonlinears, but you you have to participate in humanity. So you need a little bit of linear grasp, and um, she stood she strides those lines beautifully without falling into one or the other too dramatically. She's great, and my father's the same. My father's just fantastic. Anyway, so I just going back to you and your story. You went, you went, you moved to New York eventually in the in the and, and launched your label in the late eighties. And as I said earlier, you were very much on the New York and international fashion scene. Um, 
you have a you had you became known for a very particular aesthetic which is something I really associate with New York and tell me if I'm wrong and but not the kind of you know black skinny clothes of New York but the kind of vibrant really colorful thing that I kind of think of when I think of um you know, the fun the clubbing like eventually what became embodied in sex in the city Halloween mm-hmm. parades that kind of thing lots of color lots of ornamentation um how would you describe the aesthetic that you brought to New York fashion? Well, I would, would include what you just said there. Uh, but really what was underneath it all and rarely visible was my love of construction. That was the, the passionate and fascinating part was um, the tenets of couture, you know, the, the, the beauty of, you know, everything made by hand. And I had the great privilege of, of falling into this opportunity of working with this 400-year-old Indian wedding sari factory that was just blew my mind. The skill sets were off the charts, but more than what the bigger, bigger treasure than the skill sets was their backstock because, you know, whenever the, when something's made, there's always some leftovers. Well, there's 400 years of leftovers. So I was able to work in the nineties with lock rosins, 300 year old lock rosins and, you know, lapis uh, beads and things that were, I mean, mind blowing. That, that's, that was an astonishment to me. Those clothes, they were um, very expensive because they were very, very intricate. And often, well, one, of the, one, of the thing, one of the dresses that made me think, maybe I'm not going to do this anymore, was a dress that was, um, had to go to five continents to be completed. And I thought, this maybe is not the best way to spend your time. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it, I, my fashion days are behind me, you might have noticed. Yes. Yeah, I have. Before we move on, what could give me a can you give me a memory of, of how when you look back at fashion at that time, which I to me just looks like so much fun. How do you do you have a particular memory that stands out in your mind from that time? Well, I'm going to go with the first one that popped into my head, which is a little surprising. Um, I was I, I, um, the CFDA, which is the American Council of Fashion Designers, uh, gifted me an award one year. And uh, so uh, I had received it and uh, Susan Sarandon was very gracious to, to present it to me. So we were sitting in the office and she was very pregnant, like eight and a half, almost eight and a half months pregnant with Jack Henry. And uh, right when we sat down, uh, she grabbed my hand and put it on her stomach and Jack was just like clapping. It was crazy. You could just feel the baby going, going nuts in there. It was really sweet. It just seemed like, a, wow. it's like Jack was happy for us or something. I don't know. <laughs> It was just a really strange moment. And then being in this room of all these people that I had such, you know, respect for. Ralph Lauren, who, you know, that, my first job at, at, in the industry was at uh, 18 in the Ralph Lauren store for about three months before I got fired, rightfully so. But um, <laughs> he, he, uh, Why did you get fired? I just wasn't Ralph's image. I had pink hair. I roller skated yeah. to work. It was not a good fit. They made me come in the back door, but they were really sweet to even let me in. <laughs> I uh, well, no, I and Ralph was, I'm forever grateful because that's how I learned so much about construction. It was me uh, in the back with four um, mature African-American ladies that were so kind to me and so lovely and showed me so many things I didn't know and were open for me showing them, them things too. So it was just, it was like a magical, a magical time. I wish I could see a photo of you with pink hair and roller skates. Did you, I know you were like on the clubbing scene as well and you were hanging out at Area, which just... I, I oh, know, Area. I could, yeah. Mm. That must have been amazing hanging out there. What was it like? 
uh, otherworldly. And I still I can't imagine anything else could even come close to that. It was so ticklish. Like it, you, it, you felt, it felt otherworldly. It wasn't just going out. It was also really uneasy because they, it was set up to spook you. And the, you, the entrance sequence was down, it was a very long hallway that was lined with glass um, uh, rooms, gla glass paneled rooms that were sort of like what you'd find at the, natural the Museum of Natural History. Uh, however, there was all sorts of insane subversive installations, some with live performance going on, many, mostly with your friends. Um, and it was just, it, it was insane. It was like picture whatever the most insane Fellini thing is and then double it and put it back on top of itself. It's still amazing to walk by that, that it's still mysterious. Where it was hasn't turned into like a furniture store or anything like everything else has. So you can still, there's a very weird uh, dock sequence you walk through. It still kind of gives me this tickle when I walk by that place. But that whole kind of fashion scene of the late 90s, I mean, what that, I, I, you know, fashion, fashion shows happening in the street and MTV crossing over with fashion and... Oh, it was so much fun. Well, you know, what, uh, you mentioned that show I got to do on MTV. It was just a really... I'm not great at timing. I generally am a little behind or ahead. Uh, so the the to actually like land on a place when all the stars lined up was was super fun, and it was hosted by um, uh, Cindy Crawford, who is just lovely on every way. You know, it's it's rare that you get that beauty, and then you're, there's all that joy and and beauty inside too. So, and she was kind of us in a way. Like she she still had all that, but she was a nice Midwestern girl. So there was there. There was nobody that couldn't relate or want to look at her. So it was a very weird moment. And then we had this producer named Elisa Bellatini, who's just lovely. She's no longer with us. But she had this idea that style and fashion had nothing to do with money. And we all agreed. And so we got to do, it was literally the only thing that had to be was interesting. It, 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 didn't, it did not matter if we were, I mean, I would, I would talk to Gianni Versace about some $15,000 dress and then we do a segment on uh, $1.99 back to school, you know, redos. So it was, it was just this constant whiplash of idea and style, but bracketed in a way that we don't see anymore. And I miss it. I wish, I, I'm always surprised when something disappears that there's something doesn't jump back in its place. Like you get like a new version of it, but, um, but this is also the case in, in the nest, which is one of the reasons we're speaking today. That, that magazine was arrived from another planet. It never looked like anything else. It never, you know, I described it as a magazine being made by someone who'd never seen a magazine before. And it just, it shocked, shocked everybody and continued to for the almost seven years it was around. But that was, it was like it. Nothing stepped in it. No, no one else stepped into the place. Just before we come to Nest, um, tell me what else, what's the next thing we're putting into your, the Todd Oldham cabinet of curiosities? Ah, okay. Um, well, there's just so many fascinating objects, but I would have to take my, my glaze cabinet with me because uh, I, I'm, I have the ceramicist bug that my mother instilled. Uh, and I have, actually, I have it right here. Do you want to just see it? Yes, please. Uh, it's, I have this incredibly organized, beautiful glaze. I have cabinets of this stuff. It's like a Pantone swatch of... It Every is. single color. And they're in spectral order. I'm, that, I, people are a little surprised sometimes to find out I'm hyper-organized. And uh, yeah. so uh, that... It it's just, very neat. 
it has to be, you know, then, because then you're not, you're, there's nothing in the way of your finding the magic. There's, you don't have to dig around. So I try to set myself up for success, but the, um, I have one of the best glaze collections because I've been, I've been buying out uh, pottery shops that go out of business and I have glazes from the, all the way to the early seventies and glaze doesn't really die. So you can, I can reactivate it with water if it gets dried out or something. So I've been, it's always an, a crazy fun experiment. Um, do you still do you use it? Oh, all the time. Yeah, I just pulled a I just pulled some a pot from the kiln this morning, uh, <laughs> and I used a, a, a crazy uh, antique uh, glaze called paprika that looks nothing at all like paprika, but it's uh, it's always fun because you you never know you never know if it's going to work or if it's going to blow up in the kiln or if the color is going to work. Okay, so we're going to have to fit your cabinet of glazes in the cabinet. <laughs> I see that. Why why not? Why I'm ma- not? I'm making a mess of your cabinet. I think. Oh no! I think well, you, if like you said, if you're tidy, a tidy person, you could. I think I feel like there'll be some order there. <laughs> there will, it'll um, be, at least be placed spectrally. I promise. <laughs> <laughs> Shall we talk about nest? Sure, sure. The the best of nest. Best of nest. Yes. So I have I ha- I have my copy here. Oh my god! You have one. I have one. Biden That's amazing. Published. Biden has published the book, and they sent it to me very kindly to look at it before I spoke to you. And well, that's a miracle. A... There's like three of them or something. I had to send mine elsewhere. Yeah, yeah you're one of the hand. The, there's like a handful of people that have actually touched it. It's a beautiful um, thing to hold. It's published by Fiden and it's a coffee table book celebrating the Interiors Magazine Nest, which um, you're going, which 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 you're going to tell me about um, now and. Tell me what makes it so extraordinary. I think it, it was published between 1997 and 2004, mm-hmm. ran for 26 issues. Um, it was launched by the artist Joseph Holtzman, um, and you contributed to it yourself as a photographer. Um, what's so extraordinary about Nest, and why has it become this cult item since it closed? Well, um, the secret ingredient of Nest is whom you just mentioned, Joe Holtzman. Joe is an extraordinary man on every level. Like truly, I have never seen the likes of, of this. This the talent pool is extraordinary, and the bothering to bother is unparalleled. Like this, there's just no end to the details um, to get things made, and that's the way he thinks. So when he, whether it's reflected in his own fine art or in his interior works or his magazine works or wh- whatever it is, it's always Joe, uh, and and to such a precise, it, it's like no one has, no one else has ever touched it. And even though the, so it started out, it, it, it was very strange. So Joe decided that I have no idea exactly why he just thought he would want to make an interiors magazine and he called it nest. And so he just went ahead and built it. And then he, they, through traditional means, he went and uh, worked with groups that were there to vet it and see how the future was. And through the first vetting, they said, Oh no, no, no. This will never work. You, you, first of all, there's other magazines on the cover of your magazine, which you cannot do. Uh, <laughs> and <laughs> they gave him every list of why he, this is not going to work. So he said, okay, thank you, and then just left and published it as it is and didn't listen to them at all. And it arrived. They just it arrived in a handful of people's offices and jaws. You could hear the jaws hitting the ground all over New York. Because, I mean, think of this was, there still has never been anything like this. It's, the quality of the magazine is unparalleled. It's printed as though it was a fine art book. Uh, it's soft cover, but it might as well be hardcover. The, the early issues were all four color separations. Like it's, the extravagance is outrageous. The physical shapes of the magazines changed uh, from issue to issue. He would 
shear corners off or make it a trapezoid or puncture it or pierce it or slit it or tie ribbons around it or, or uh, zip it closed in a plastic cover or a buttoned around uh, printed uh, cotton sleeve for the, to cover up a Molina photograph with exposed vagina that you could not put on the newsstand. Um, so <laughs> <laughs> it was just always some, um, I, I, it was, it, it, like, it's, it, the best way to describe it is though it, it was made by someone who had never seen a periodical. They just had nothing about it fell into any trope. Also the way, I, oh, go ahead. No, I was just saying, I was just thinking about other interiors magazines that were on the newsstand at the time and why would Nest look so radically different? I mean, you've just described the different textures and papers, but if you were looking at say, I don't know, World of Interiors or Architectural Digest. And then how would that suddenly be different when you looked at Nest? What was the... Well, World of Interiors is the only shared DNA strand I can see between Nest and... And World of Interiors is, you know, like from the heavens. So I won't include that. But in, the, in, in America, there was things like uh, HG and... Um, there was a few of these at Shelter Magazines. But it was just about rich people's homes or celebrity people's homes with whatever plaques on the wall. And they were all adequate, but there was nothing... It was just this, it seemed like it was more attached to pay stubs than it was attached to ingenuity or, and, and any, I mean, whatever, if you have money, you can hire the best people to go do it, whatever. So um, Joe just, these people, most of these interiors, it wasn't about like having a, a designer, they were the designer, or they, it was, or it was of such an extraordinary effort that it took like, you know, centuries to finish in the cases of some of the castles that were in there. Oh my Lord. It was the, the, the uh, visual duality that, that really made Nest shine because there were the most extravagant homes you've ever seen. And then you would see uh, the cardboard boxes that the Dutch offer their homeless population. So there would be, it was just, it, it had truly once, it shared DNA with House of Style actually. They just had nothing to do with money, but it was clearly a lot of money involved. And just thinking about some of the interiors that were photographed, I, mean, I, I, spoke, I read a nice quote in there that was a in a letter from Michael uh, Matthew Slotover, who was uh, one of the founders of Freeze, and he said he was oh that guy critiquing <laughs> that guy was critiquing the magazine. <laughs> um, but one nice one nice thing he said um, was that was the magazine's mission was to reveal something about people and the way they decorate their homes, and I think that was a nice way of putting it because when you look through it is saying something about the person i mean the first spread you see is the guy who was obsessed was a super a farah fawcett super fan and his bedroom <laughs> was completely decorated floor to ceiling with images of farah fawcett his bedding was farah fawcett he had a fridge or a, a kind of a glass cupboard full of farah fawcett shampoo products mm. he had um, the barcode from the shampoo tattooed on his neck he was quite right. a, quite a fan um, extreme stuff but then you had like you said the um the homeless um boxes the dutch offered the homeless people or um images from a russian orphanage with uh, the kids looked you know they were sort of joyful images um with posters of jean-claude van damme on the wall <laughs> um and kids having fun but there was a huge contrast there and then there would be a palace it was just really fun and it would create it could create a very uncomfortable whiplash if it weren't for joe's elegant uh, pacing. Let's just go back and explain to the people listening. So you contributed to the magazine while it was in being made yeah. at the time, and now you've 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 created this book, which is a compendium of all the Nest issues. Exactly. I shot for almost every issue as a photographer, um, but uh, Joe and I were are, are 
he's a very dear friend of mine and I understand him very much. And, and I love that he said, has said no for decades about doing this. And um, so I, I just wanted it to get out into the world because there were very few copies made. I mean, we're talking about handfuls of thousands of things printed. They were not printed in the hundreds of thousands. So there weren't that many. Um, they were available, they were expensive at the time for a, a periodical. The thing is, most everybody kept it. I don't think anybody ever threw away an issue of Ness. So they, they are handful. I've heard they go for thousands and thousands of dollars on the internet. They do. Yeah, they do. If you have full collections, you've got a gold mine. You're sitting on a gold mine. Um, I bet you have a full, you must have a full collection in one of your. I, I do, but I have, yeah. I have one of the most special because Joe gifted me the first editions to everything. So I, I, I am the protector of the, the Nest first editions, which I, I, I'm going to deacquisition to the right person soon. It needs Can we put them temporarily in the cabinet of curiosities? We sure could because they're really, they're very special. You, you know what Nest looks like, but the, the extra special part is that Joe wrote little notes to me, like things he liked or he apologized from time to time on the unsuccessful type placements. He, the, there was no middle ground for Joe. It was either glorious success or abject failure. And uh, so if something, something sh slipped or shifted in printing, it went into the abject failure zone and would require uh, uh, apology notes that he would print and have tabbed, tipped into the magazine at extreme cost <laughs> to apologize for a sequence that's, that went awry or something, I don't know. He's just extraordinary. And the fact that he, he let me do this, but he said, we said I, I said, I need to interview you. He, this is the most reluctant, shy man who truly has no interest in telling anybody anything. So it's so interesting that he's everything he does outwardly is through his art, but to get him to talk is just about impossible. He's he's like pathologically shy. Um, so we, when we started interviewing for him, he even though we're very close, he just he's like I can't, I don't want to be interviewed. So he wrote it, which I couldn't believe he agreed to. So he wrote us this exquisite seventy-page essay that that. Um, he wrote a travel log sort of through every issue, some moment that, that happened or what led or some contextualizing situation. It, it's just lovely. And you get to hear, hear how Joe's clever wordplay and I, know, I, I couldn't believe he agreed to do it. It was just shocking, but it was so much fun. And then the people at Fiden are, I couldn't believe it. I've, I've published with several houses through the years, but these, they blew me away. This book is a nightmare. Uh, as you can see, there's the, we pick 16 spread, pick 16 pages from all 26 issues and had to put it back together. But Joe with Joe's foiling and spot varnishes. And I mean, the, the, there's a cover of a home that has many cats, consequently many uh, litter boxes that Joe embedded with orange glitter. So <laughs> we, we had to as well. Um, but we found a way to do it. The, the trick was we had to do it all at one time. You know, Joe got, 26 issues to do it. We had to figure out how to do it all at one in one book. So uh, Fiden miraculously figured out how to do it at a, at a price that doesn't, it's not equivalent to homes, home purchases. So I, I don't know how they did it. Did you find yourself taking a trip down memory lane, opening the old, the old issues? I, d I did, but it's, you know, I have a, my, 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 mem my brain is a little prismatic. So, and I have trouble with time. So everything's kind of last week to me. Every, everything just feels like it's like just right there. So it's fun to visit it, but it stays in my head. You know, nest, nest swirls around. And it was a, a lot of effort. I would go 
he would, I would go all over the place to photograph it and in odd ways. Like um, I went to Tennessee to, to photograph Graceland, which is Elvis Presley's home, a, a really bizarre, in, incredible place. But we decided not to shoot it as though Architectural Digest would. We, we wanted to shoot it as a tourist would see it. So uh, I shot it as a, a tourist or we would go to... Uh, so you actually went in as part of a tour group into Graceland and then and then I would just stay. The rooms. I would stay. The tourists would keep going. I would stay and for about four or five minutes there would be no one in the room. So I would photograph it and then wait wait for the next sequence. I was there for about five hours, but I got it. <laughs> they didn't. Amazing. No, I, they, well, what, I, I what wasn't was doing the... anything illegal. No. <laughs> <laughs> what was the criteria for Joe's choosing a? an interior to go into nest was there something that made him what were the things that made him decide to put something in uh passionate unbridled dedication that's the thing you could there was nothing limping going in there it had to be some uh like near maniacal passion for whatever whatever it was or, or some precision you know um i i for, for me when i think like like the artist brent brancusi is perfect like there's every time I see something from Brancusi, my heart speeds speeds up, and it doesn't matter from which angle you view it is it's an exquisite, and that's sort of the same. The Brancusi glasses, I think, those are the ones that Joe wore when he was looking at at things to put in. They had to be perfect from all the sides, and perfect, his version of perfect, meaning that it, it was mm -hmm. a complete, complete, passionate execution. And it does celebrate sort of idiosyncrasy in home design. I mean, taken to the nth degree, almost like a lot of it's very eccentric. What do you think about interior design these days? Do you think that it's become sort of homogenized because of imagery on the internet, on those social media imagery platforms? Well, that homogenization is just a side effect of overexposure. So it certainly happens. Um, the good thing, though, there's a lot of there's a lot more room for different tastes and through and exposures to social media. So I don't think that there's really anything ultimately bad but any time that there's too much of one thing you get this sort of ghetto ghettoization of it and the, whenever too much of the same thing sticks together that's never a good idea um so that's that's kind of the bore from that but i think we have so many different points of view and and there's really no right or wrong there's harmony and ways to get things better and personalized but you know if you're if you if you're feeling your space then it's successful it, it may be hideous to me but that doesn't matter <laughs> 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 enough said um do you i i've realized we've only put three things in your cabinet and you can choose two more to put in Ah, okay let's see uh well one is the collection of i'm going to bring my my uh, ancient collection of clamshells uh i in the early 1950s they were, were deemed illegal to mine but these, I have a collection of clamshells that range from like four feet to like unbelievable huge things that have been were pulled out pre-50s that through the years I've gotten. And then one of my most favorite one is that this has been a passion of mine for years. Joe Holtzman grew up with one that he gifted me that he had since he was a little boy. The same, the same thing we both stared at since we were kids. It's very strange. Um, so uh, those... There's not a moment goes by when I don't see them and it stops them in my tracks and I have to go into it. I, I mean, that nature can make these things. Oh my, it's just extraordinary. So, so is it the actual visual, is, is it the way that they appear aesthetically to you that's so appealing or is it more about what they represent to you in terms of what clamshells are in nature? 
the representation is not so much. It's the astonishment that they exist and the, the, the Brancusi-like perfection. They are extraordinary. The, the arcs that, that willow out at the ends and the, 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 the sheen shift from the interiors, which are smooth as glass and full of opalescent tone to the scratchy ones on the eye. I mean, they're, they're miracles and marvels and mm -hmm. um, it, it just makes me happy to have them. Although they probably should have been left in the ocean, but I didn't, I didn't pull them out, I bought them. Speaking of um, the ocean, I mean, you, you were supporting environmental issues way back. And in fact, you, you were way ahead of the curve. I mean, these days everyone's, you know, we call it being woke, um, but you <laughs> were way ahead of the curve when you were, you know, back in the nineties, you were featuring diverse models on the runway. You're openly gay. You supported environmental issues through your work. Um, how, what do you think about this need to put everything through a political lens at the moment? Well, in the culture, it's 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 a, a bore, and it um, is unfortunately going to doesn't do good because we need we need it it polarizes situations, and we we live in this kind of weird dry drunk where everything's black or white, we, and and the world is gray. It's not you know very few things are as definitive as we pretend. So that's the kind of sad part about what's going on. But there's there's hope, you know. There's hope. I I, I see young kids that blow me away. Um, I, I, you see the passion of, of people that are willing to, to do this publicly too, which, oh my God. I mean, I got to, my ridiculously famous days were when there was a handful of <laughs> channels and, you know, that kind of stuff. I, oh my God, I have, couldn't imagine the, how awful it would be to have to endure that kind of fame today. It just sounds truly hideous. Are you, one last thing to put in your cabinet before we close it? Oh, let's see. Well, uh, okay, I'm going to take a Cecil Beaton photo I have. Uh, I know I spoke the photos earlier, but this is a separate one. This one really moves me. It, it, it's, the image itself is extremely gorgeous. It's of Gloria Swanson when she was, I guess, in her maybe 30s. And uh, it's, it's photographed with a razor-thin depth of field. I mean, the, the focus is like a, a quarter of an inch, and it's just on... The, the plane of her face, the lips, the chin, the top of the cheeks, and then the rest is slightly defocused with the most exquisite lighting. But it, it like you just, it, it's as perfect a portrait as one could get with the magic of what the photographer brings to it. But there's another part of this. The image is perfect, but um, Cecil Beaton uh, couldn't pay his assistant at one point. He went broke. And he traded, he gave, gifted the, the assistant, the prints to sell to be able to get the money. And I, I got one of them. So it always is this nice reminder that even, you know, the most glorious of efforts, it gets tough and you can't give in. And, you know, my, my, I, I've had so many successes and so many opportunities and none of them have been easy or steady. So uh, it's just nice to kind of, I don't know, I, I look at that and just and see it as resilience and possibility and then look at and, and exquisite beauty it's just kind of it's not bittersweet it's just sort of the way it is so i like all of that i like it in an image very much are you working on another book are you gonna do, do something else um i'm working on uh, I, I did a book about four or five years ago on the designer named alexander gerard who's an yeah yeah it was extraordinary talent that was a real treasure but he was also an amazing photographer. And there's over 8,000 images that have been, um, they're entered into the archive of the Santa Fe Folk Art Museum that no one's ever seen. So 
uh, I just got a, a, we're arranging a grant to get it all scanned. And so that'll be my next book out for next year. It's, it's Alexander Gerard's photography. He traveled all over the world. And so there's, I don't know, it's just a point of view that you don't see, like, you know, Turkey in the 1950s. It's, it's just, it's pretty amazing. That one. And then working on a garden book. Okay. It's a lot. I look forward to it. Well, I think that's a very nice place to end. Um, Todd Oldham, thank you so much for joining me on the podcast. Thank you. I really appreciate it. And I like, I, I, I'm a fan. I've enjoyed your other, your other visitors too. So thank you so much. That was an episode of The Collector's House, a Matches Fashion podcast. You can find more episodes and more about Five Carlos Place on the Matches Fashion website. And you can join the conversation on social media by searching for at Matches Fashion, at Matches Fashion Man, and the hashtag Five Carlos Place. Thanks for listening.